This is Music in the Key of Geneva. I'm Kelly Walker. Music in the Key of Geneva is an ongoing project of the Geneva Historical Society. Museum curator John Marks has been researching all kinds of music and musicians around Geneva and presenting what he's found around town and online. Consider two pieces of music that on a casual listen might seem unrelated. If I was just another dusty record on the shelf, would you blow me off and play me like everybody else? If I asked you to scratch my back, could you manage that? Like if we had chicken travy, I can handle it. Fans of the band Gym Class Heroes and of the podcast S-Town are both enjoying the work of Matt McGinley. He's a co-founder of the genre-bending band, and he provided part of the musical score for the genre-defying podcast. Both have reached literally millions of listeners. The YouTube video for the song Stereo Hearts is approaching 300 million views. S-Town has been downloaded around 40 million times. Matt's workspace reflects a calmer pace. He makes his home and keeps a cozy studio not far from his hometown of Geneva. Was it always the drums? Is that what you started with as as a young musician? Yeah, um, I started playing the drums, I guess, in fourth grade. Uh, and Why? Because I can tell you why I started playing the saxophone. They, <laughs> they came out and demonstrated musical instruments and... Uh, they played the saxophone, and I just liked the way that it looked. I'm not oh. sure it was the best fit for me, but that's how I started playing the saxophone. What what drew you to the drums in the first place? Yeah, that. I mean, I guess that's ideal if you can say, oh, that, I want that, and you gravitate towards it naturally. I don't know that I, like, demonstrated the same inclination towards the drums, but I remember my mom pointed out, like, I think you should play the drums. And I was like... Okay. And so... When does that ever happen? Isn't it that the parents usually are mortified when the kid comes <laughs> home and says, I'm going to play the drums? This is this is a remarkably uh, cool mom. Yeah, I think so. I I don't know the um, the torture that she would... Be, <laughs> like, she must, must not have been aware of, you know, what was to come, I guess, but... Um, or how far I would take an interest in the drums. But it was great. So, you know, at, at the behest of my mom, I... Um, took up the drums and uh, I, I graduated and was like childhood friends with Milo Benassi, who's another Geneva musician who literally to this day, I still continue to work on music with. Um, and he actually played the saxophone. Um, and I remember like we would jam together. I would take a ride cymbal and a snare drum over at West street school. And like Milo would take a saxophone and we would play bad to the bone. Uh, <laughs> Actually, years before that, in second grade, I remember we played a piano duet where we played MC Hammer's um, Can't Touch This in front of our class. Mr. Kaluzi, um, rest in peace, was our uh, music teacher and was like cool enough to sort of say like, ah, oh, these kids are interested. Like, boom, give them a show. Like he gave us our first show. Wow. That's so cool. Um, so, yeah, I mean, G- Geneva is like so just even that early on was like so incredibly supportive of like um, me anyways, in terms of what I wanted to do musically. And, you know, I hope that it's still continuing to sort of be that nurturing and recognizing when kids take an interest in the arts or anything, sports, whatever. And like and just giving them an extra bit of support. 
Well, and it's something that I think I'm encountering a lot because we, we've spoken, we've had Pablo Falbrew on the podcast. I've interviewed the three co-founders of the Geneva Music Festival. It's uh, Elliot Heaton and Hannah mm-hmm. Collins and Jeff Hurd. There are quite a few people who have come out of Geneva to make careers in music. You know, Pablo chooses to focus in Geneva, but the the three classical musicians that that founded the Geneva Music Festival are now spread across the country teaching and performing. You and, and as you say, Milo, Mm -hmm. Travis, have have all made careers out of it. What was it about the schools? You, You kind of touched on it with your music teacher of being very supportive and saying, let's, let's give them a forum. What was it about this that made it such a, a supportive environment? I don't know. It's, but it's like, if anything, it just shows you like what a huge impact like teachers or parents or adults can have. Because like that was a, I mean, Mr. Kaluzi like putting us in front of the music class and letting us play. That was like, that was just one of like, that was like a trend of like teacher music teacher behavior that happened all through my entire like schooling. I remember getting to middle school and like uh, my, my parents were like, cool, we should get you like, you know, in drum lessons if this is something that you want to pursue even further. And um, I remember Mrs. Lucas, like uh, finding um, Kevin Goodman or uh, who's a, a local jazz musician who's incredible amazing drummer and I studied with him basically for my entire schooling career but like you know she helped help put me in touch you know with this gentleman who would help me further my drum skills um and I remember getting to high school and like we formed gym class and like we were like all right cool let's we should make a record and like Milo had this little t- four track task cam recorder um but we were trying to find somewhere that had decent enough acoustics where we could like not be getting crazy slap back and resonance and all that. And so we asked um, Mr. Famulari, like if we could come in and use the band room on a Saturday. <laughs> and we were like, kind of like cringing as we asked it. Cause we knew that was like such a big ask to like let a bunch of kids into the high school unattended uh, on a weekend. And he said, sure, it was no problem. And so we showed up at the high school on a Saturday morning and um, they let us into the band room. And we, I guess, cut our first record there. It was like four songs. And I mean, it sounded terrible, but um, I think you need that. You need, you need the experience of like cutting a bunch of songs and listening to them and being dissatisfied with them. I think that's important to, to listen to yourself suck so you can say, okay, what can I do to make this not suck? And I think you do that. And then the next time you do it, it sucks a little bit less. And then each time you do it, it's just, it gets a little bit better until finally it actually meets your level of expectation. You're like, this is good. And then it's like, how can we make this even better? And so I think that like, um, you know, that just happened so many times to where like people in Geneva just like took like a leap of faith and like kind of let us do what we wanted to do and said, okay, you know, so we were like fixtures at Area Records back in the day that was like. Ah, that was the coolest place in the world. And like um, all those guys, it was such a cool cast of characters working at Area Records. And so I just remember going in there and like really not even having a dime to spend on a record, but it was just like cool if I can hang out and like talk to these guys about music, then that's that's really my goal. So we did that like all the time. And it was cool because it was like they had the big bulletin board out front. And so that was like, I don't know, kind of like the town crier or whatever, if you were like looking to be in a band or 
um, looking to find a band member. Or in our case, we kind of had a solidified band, which was Gym Class Heroes, and we were just looking to spread the word about our band. I remember Travis and I going around the high school, putting up flyers everywhere, and the flyers were promoting nothing. Like, literally, there was no show. There was no record. There was nothing. We just wanted people to know Gym Class Heroes was a thing, you know. Um, And so Travis had drawn, like, an illustration of a character, and then it just said Gym Class Heroes. That was it. We just wanted people to know that Gym Class Heroes existed. (laughs) And then I think the vice principal came and made us take them all down. But that was cool. (laughs) Do you have any of those still? Uh, I, I actually do. Yeah, they're in my Isn't mom's, that the best? mom's garage. Yeah, totally. And like, I'm I'm really weird about collecting things. Like, if something is like two months old, I just I don't want to look at it ever again. And so I'm just like, I wouldn't have any of these things if it were not for my mom. My mom is a lot more like, eh, we'll hang on to this. You may want this someday. So fortunately for her, we still have some of those things. But yeah, that flyer is still kicking around somewhere. Was the intent... I mean, you formed the band early, as you say. You had a, you know, you had an established band. You guys were were tight. You know, you you were. It wasn't like, you know, you hear about people who had bands in high school, and one of them was real serious, and maybe two or three would kind of pass through from time to time and such. But you guys were, you know, it still gets talked about. You know, you're playing. I think sideshow. You were. You were. You know, around. Was the intent always to do this for a living, or were you kind of surprised when it starts taking off? I wasn't surprised, but the intent was not to do this for a living. The intent was, like, it was always, like, I feel like we just always had something to prove. Um, and so anytime we, like, and, and, and that even goes back to us putting flyers out. It was just, like, we're proud of this thing already, and so we're trying to prove ourselves. We're putting up flyers, and then we go cut a record and then like come back and like we weren't trying to make money f- through the record we were just we wanted people to hear our music it was just like just please take this cheap cdr with our music on it and listen to it and play it for your friends because like we're so proud of these songs and we can't believe that we did this and so just take this and listen to it it would mean the world to us and so i think anytime we did a record that was that was the end goal the end goal was just for people to listen to it and so the more we did that, just the better we got at songwriting and the better we got at um, producing and playing our instruments. And in Travis's case, like the more poetic he got and the more conceptual he got with building songs and lyrics. And so um, I think it was just through the fact that we started the band when I was 14. And so like by the time we were like signed, like I guess I was... 21 when we got signed to Fuel by Ramen and it was like I had already been doing that band for like you know seven years I guess at that point and so I mean that's kind of a lifetime some bands don't even last seven years and so yeah and and I think that like that sort of goes with anything is is if you do something long enough you're gonna get really good at it like I don't care what it is you do, like anything that you do repetitively over and over with with a near compulsion. And that's the way we pursued Gym Class Heroes. It was a near obsessiveness. It was like obsessed with people hearing our music. And so that just started to grow and grow and grow. Um, But it all started in Geneva. I mean, Geneva was ground zero for Gym Class Heroes and the fan base. You know, it, it just all spread from there. 
And we could even see that on a local level too, because, um, so yeah, like Martha at the, the rec center, she, yeah, she would, we would go to her and say, can we put a show on in the pavilion? The pavilion that's like, uh, still there right near Ramada kind of. And, um, she'd say, yes. (laughs) And then we'd be like, okay, can you pay for a PA company to do it? Yes. Awesome. And so like, literally like the first year we did that, there might've been like 70 people there and then like second year it was like cool like 250 and then like i mean years later we were like we were probably getting like up to a thousand people just to come out when we were still a local band and so i think that like um i mean i don't know that our aspirations were far beyond geneva it was just that geneva was sort of the testing grounds for what we would go on to accomplish as a band on a larger scale I wonder sometimes, you know, as I've, I've spoken with people who have had, you know, you, you had a considerable amount of success, you know, in terms of being able to play some very large venues, some very large festivals and such. Were there those times when you were up on stage and the crowd just stretches out and out and out where you look at each other and simply say, <laughs> how did this happen? <laughs> this is, where, where did all of these people come from? Was it ever, did you ever have just kind of that pinch yourself moment? Yeah, we had a, a lot of those. Um, I think that like, you know, in a, in a band's career is, I think is rarely like linear. It's like, it's not like just a steady ascent and it's not a steady descent either. It's just, it's peaks and valleys. And so it's just like, I think at all these different like, mile points um we would kind of take stock of where we were at and what we were doing and we tended to recognize when it was like oh this is a pretty important moment in our career and so um that's always been something that i feel like we appreciate um and take stock of but yeah there was definitely like some festivals that i remember playing a festival in australia um that was just like it was remarkable i don't even know how many people there were but it was like i literally couldn't see the end of it to either side i could look to the right and it was like still going and look to the left still going then look off in the horizon and it was just like and of course they weren't there to see us entirely it was like uh you know we were playing at a festival amongst other really really awesome bands but um yeah there's there's an impressiveness and and kind of a um anxiety that goes along with like I guess performing in places that huge and I think with gym class like musically what we do is actually best served in a theater I think a theater is ideal for us because there's something there's something that Travis does when we play live that's like he interacts with the fans and in a unique way he dialogues with the fans. He riffs with the fans. Like, you know, and I, and I think that, like, once we stepped up to venues larger than theaters, like, a lot of those um, nuances that make gym class a really compelling band to watch live started to get a little bit lost, you know. And so um, I think, like, you know, having the perspective of, you know, played to two people and then played to, you know, maybe 100,000 people. Uh, I 
feel like the sweet spot for gym class is like 2200 like the size of like i don't know what the smith opera house is i'd ballpark it at a 1400 that. oh okay it'll do wow. 1400 so that's like that's a good size room for you all yeah it's got the intimacy but you can still get a lot of people in to get that energy yeah legally 1400 you could stuff 2200 <laughs> people in there i promise we should try yeah i intend to um so let's talk about the podcast music because this to me you know, I, you've done a lot of great work. You've done a lot of work that people have enjoyed. But honestly, if if we were to frame what I would be like most, wow, that's the greatest gig ever. It's exactly scoring stuff like that. How does this How does this come about in the first place? Did it start with This American Life? It did, yeah. Who, who it, did you meet first? That How did this connection get made? So, yeah, it's it's kind of a long chain of events, but um, yeah, so working with gym class for years and years eventually led me to playing drums with an artist named Rin Weaver. And so I went out and toured with her for about a year and a half. And um, through that, I met Damien Grafe, who's the music supervisor at This American Life. He's basically the guy that finds the music for the show. And he's been doing this for a long time. So anything... You know how This American Life kind of has a sound? Like, you think about the music and you kind of know it's like, okay, that sort of dusty, kind of quirky, sort of like, maybe it's funk music, I'm not sure. Like, that's all coming through Damien. Like, that is his taste in music. And so, um, he's he's the gentleman that finds the music for the show. And so, um, yeah, I was introduced to him and I was able to create a, a bulk of music for him. And a chunk of it ended up get ended up getting used on the show. Um, so that you, was awesome. Were you a listener to the show before that? I was, yeah. And so it was like a big deal for me. I was like, wow. Like I'm like you. It was like of all the work that I've done, like it pays maybe the least and is the most meaningful by far. It was so meaningful for me to, you know, be able to work on that show. And then um so, yeah, so we did one round of writing, which was last year, and then uh, around Thanksgiving in 2016, we started, we were going to start working on another round of writing for This American Life, but at the same time, he put on my radar, he's like, well, I'm also finding music for this show called S-Town, uh, it's really interesting, I could send you a summary of it if you might be interested. And I was like, yeah. And so he said, actually, I think I might even, I have the, I literally have like the, the script, if you will, um, somewhere around here. But, uh, and it contained all the spoilers and like everything like that. And it had a really good like layout of the characters and, and all of that. So what we did was, uh, I basically just tried, we, we, we figured that any music that I would write for S-Town would be palatable enough for this American life. So if it did not get picked up for S town, we could then go, um, give the, this American life team a crack at it. But you definitely had a little bit more guidance for S town. They, it sounds like they really leaned a little more heavily on there's a narrative arc here and there's a specific mood and and tension that we're going for. Totally. And, And I was like, I, I, like tried to draw inspiration from as much of that as possible. I would like sit there and like study the script and I would think about the geography and the setting. And, and, and so 
I would bring in like I, I, I tend to have like a palette of instruments that I think work really well for like the pacing of that show. And um, but for S-Town, I experimented with bringing in like this thing called a trumpet fiddle and like um, r- sort of like rural instruments, like just oddball, quirky, rural instruments um, and tried to bring those into the type of music that I tend to produce. Um, I would I would sort of dissect characters and try and be like, all right, this character is like, what does his song sound like? And so I would specifically like single out a person or I would think about events, like not to give any spoilers away, which it won't, but there is a death that occurs throughout Earth within the series and there's a funeral and I knew that that was happening. And so I was like, cool, like how can I write like a hymn? Um, and so I, I got out like an old Farfisa organ and wrote this really quirky um, hymn, kind of like a funeral hymn. But um, yeah, I, I did try to write to specific events within the show. And then after the script, I felt like there was a point in time, maybe two months in where I was like kind of drying up um, with ideas just based off the script. And so they sent me about 20 or 25 minutes of tape, which which was really cool because that was that was actually great because then I could hear the pacing and like the way that Brian speaks and like all of and and John McElmore's like voice which is like incredible and like all of these things and and that sort of helped me um I guess like check that the pacing and the tone of my music and the palette of instruments felt relevant to the the content did the entire project become i i don't know a better way to describe it more real to you when you started hearing those voices because that had to be a big change from a script in front of you and some overall conceptual information to hearing those voices especially since that's not how you work for this American yeah life. no it did it definitely did it definitely became more real um it didn't it does not get more real than when when it initially starts to air or on iTunes and then people start listening. That was like the realest thing ever because like I didn't, I didn't know that the show was, I mean, I assumed it would do well. You know, this American life is usually like, that's a pretty big show. And like, and serial was huge. Yeah. I mean, it was one of the first really genuine podcast hits. Right. And um, so I guess, I, I guess I was definitely surprised at how well S-Town did. Um, but the show itself is so incredible. Like it couldn't like, it's the best show ever. I've listened to it three times and not because my music is in it, but because it's just that good. It's like, it's like, I mean, it it plays out like a novel and it's like reading a novel and you have like a book and then you're just like, God, this book was so good. I have to go back and reread this, you know, just because it makes you feel something. And yeah. Have people sought out? you as a musician because of hearing you on S-Town? Because, you know, if if you don't really know Gym Class Heroes, or if you only know them as a band name, you may not know the individual members. Are there people who become fans of Matt McGinley because of of hearing that? Because, you know, certainly the, the public radio listener and the podcast listener can be a little bit more obsessive about <laughs> the voices and the sounds that they're hearing. Is, have people sought out, you know, asked, is this music going to be released as a result? Or has it really been much more of an organic whole? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, my life has not changed drastically <laughs> since S-Town was released, no. But um, that's not what my intentions were. Like, I, I'm... 
I'm really, really, really happy to contribute my music to an important piece of journalism and just put my music to something that enables people to tell their stories, you know, and like that's so meaningful to me. And so like there's 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 nothing that I could receive from that, you know, that would sort of like trump the feeling of just like doing good work and like putting your head down and like being given freedom to create music that's that's really inspired um you know being given no guidance you know like the the s-town staff and producers and music supervisor put a lot of trust i think in myself and the three other composers on the show so that said there's definitely been like a bump in like like i don't know followers on like twitter and instagram things like that but that stuff tapers off you know um and it's cool it, it's i'm i'm always happy for people dis- to discover me as a musician and um take a look at what i'm doing and what i'm up to cuz i put the same effort into anything that i do it's like i it's not like i put more effort into s town or into this american life it's like um it's it just so happens that those two shows are on a different demographics radar i'm i'm used to working in like pop music in, mm-hmm. in that realm and so it's just like my stuff maybe might miss the 25 to like 60 year olds whereas now in working with this american life in s town i'm sort of reaching a new demographic and and that's really exciting because it's like i'm kind of doing the same music that i do with gym class or with anybody else it's just that like within the context of this particular piece of journalism it's now palatable to a different audience. So that's really cool. So for you, in terms of, you know, gym class in, in particular, look at the enormous number of influences that go into making a group that that basically says the the musical world is big and we want to be a part of all of it. Is there something in there that you can look back on and say, this this is what leads me to want to score something like this American life? Yeah. I mean, yeah, you're a hundred percent right. And I think the way that you describe gym class heroes as this like product of like all these like this amalgamation of influences and these different things like that's like that's spot on like gym class heroes and i think that's a super unique thing about the band is like you know we grew up listening to like krs1 and deftones and hall and oats and prince and like all of this just wide variety of things i think that's like not that's not typical like when people especially kids start bands it's like cool i want to sound like this band like this band, Led Zeppelin, this is the reason why we're starting our band. Blink-182, this is the reason why we're starting our band. It's like, you know, you can point to the one band that you want your band to sound like. But with gym class, it was always this very natural blend of things. And to come full circle, I feel like my career is kind of as such. And in, in the music that, for some strange reason, is really palatable to this American life in S-Town is like, kind of this weird quirky blend of music that I've been doing my whole life you know like uh I might be the only composer on S-Town that's like chopping up like drum breaks the way that they did like in like 90s hip-hop and then but then I'm playing like that against like you know Farfisa organs or like you know dialing in guitar sounds and stuff like that and it's just this really weird cross-section of music that kind of becomes its own thing and that's that's really what this american life has allowed me to do is like 
sort of like no holds barred, just be myself and kind of find my own voice as a composer. And so I don't know where it leads. Like I don't know, you know, maybe I just keep writing for This American Life and then, you know, it ends there. Or maybe I get a chance to score a film with this weird blend of like, you know, chop drums, farfisa, guitar, quirky music that I'm doing. Like, so I I don't know. I don't know what's next, I guess. But um, I think the important thing is I'm, I'm enjoying this and I'm taking risks doing this. And the thing that I'm wary of is like, is having, I'm using my fingers to make those quote things and saying clients. And I think like when you have like a client, you're like uh, trying to, you're trying to get to the place that they want it to be. But I think with the situation like writing for This American Life, I'm just trying to get to the place that I want it to be. And every time I sit down to write music, it's like I'm taking it somewhere different and I'm challenging myself. And um, I think that like, I just really want to stay in my own lane and do the music I want to do because I would love for, I'm making the things again, clients to come to me and say, we want you to do that, that thing that you do, that, that you're known for, and that thing that your music sounds like, that's what we want, you know, so that that's like, I feel like right now, especially I'm being pretty choosy about what I'm trying to do. I mean, my general thought is say yes to everything, but at the same time, I'm being, um, I'm being pretty picky about uh, getting too far from the music that I'm inclined to naturally do. Thanks to Matt McGinley for a great conversation and for providing musical accompaniment for this episode of Music in the Key of Geneva. Thanks, too, to Pablo Falbrew for putting me in touch with Matt in the first place. Music in the Key of Geneva is a production of the Geneva Historical Society. Carrie Lippincott, Executive Director. John Marks is our Executive Producer. Music in the Key of Geneva is supported by a grant from the New York Council for the Humanities. Any views, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed in this podcast do not necessarily represent those of the National Endowment for the Humanities. I'm Kelly Walker. Thanks for listening.